was the night before Christmas, and all through the city, not a soul was stirring, not even a parliamentary subcommittee. All thoughts of commuting had been put right to bed, and peace had descended from Penge to Hampstead. From people going home to Berkshire or Ukraine, to the indifferent non-Christians who lived around Brick Lane, from Morley's to Claridge's, Franco Manka to Little Bay, from the glitterballs of Vauxhall, all happy and gay, a sense of festive cheer arrived in an Uber, just in time for Christmas Day. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Sati. Merry Christmas, BJ. So welcome to this, in case you haven't guessed, very festive edition of Fear City. In today's episode, Sato and I are going to delve into our Christmas stocking and each unwrap presents with some mysterious London-related Christmas gifts. So, come along with us as we journey back to the London of Christmas past. Can I have the first present? Yes, of course. (laughs) Okay, hold on. Thank you. It is book-shaped. It's a book. Oh, it's A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. You're very welcome. Oh, I, I didn't say thank you. Um, but I do like it and it's very appropriate for the first gift that we would open for our festive episode because so many Christmas traditions that we think of as having been from time immemorial are in fact from Victorian London and some of them are even pretty much invented by Charles Dickens himself. Well you're on the nose there because indeed the reason I've given you Christmas Carol is because I think it is the definitive version of Christmas and when Dickens published his novel um, Christmas Carol in 1880 it was a huge commercial success and it really spoke to the Victorian people of the time and it's really been a commercial success ever since so I'll I'll mention the various movie incarnations you'll be maybe interested to hear that the very first Christmas Carol adaptation was in 1901 sure that's the one I thought of (laughs) which was a silent film as you may (laughs) imagine for the era it's had countless adaptations since with I think our parents' generation would regard a 1951 classic starring Alistair Sim as the definitive movie version of A Christmas Carol. But to me, and I think you will agree, that the best version of Christmas Carol is obviously A Muppet's Christmas Carol. That's the one I was really thinking of. It's my favourite. I love Kermit the Frog as Bob Cratchit. His little crumpled I am sad face could not possibly be a better rendition of Bob Cratchit than that. And interestingly, I read a whole article by a Dickens uh, expert and he said that The Muppet Christmas Carol was in fact the most faithful of the adaptations to the novel. Well done, Muppets. My present now. (laughs) I think you mean, where is your beautifully wrapped gift? Here you go. It's very small. But that sometimes is the best. If you say so. It's a tiny little light. A light bulb. Shall I make you guess? No, no, I'll tell you. So uh, because I couldn't fit the entire 36-foot Norwegian fir spruce tree into your present, it in fact is just one of the lights that represent the 500 white lights on the beautiful tree that Norway sends to London every single year to be displayed in Trafalgar Square. I would have thought a bauble may have been a better representation for a Christmas tree. Oh, my sweet and terrible English friend. In Scandinavia, you will definitely not find, like, baubles on things, basically. It's all white lights. So, uh, yeah, the tree only has white lights because it comes from the country of Norway to uh, speak to the excellent relations between Norway and our fine country of Britain. Back in World War Two, you may have heard of the whole Nazi thing. So the Familiar Nazis <laughs> invaded Norway in 1940 
and Churchill and his whole crew decided to go over and help out but it was a famously badly planned endeavour so they got there too late not really enough people but the one thing they did or the handful of things that they did manage to do was they got the uh, royal family and the government out and all the reserves of gold any frankincense and myrrh or gold? <laughs> well actually I, I couldn't say for sure but they got all these people out just the one king as well <laughs> all, all the way to London where they enjoyed our hospitality for the rest of the war in London and in recognition of this the Norwegian people I guess even though they were left behind with the Nazis, send this beautiful tree to us every single year, comes to us via Felixstowe. Yep, the in port Suffolk, town. The very famous and delightful port town of Felixstowe. And it, when the lights are put on in Trafalgar Square, it's kind of a nice like Christmassy thing, gets the season off to a nice start every single year. And is that maybe where the tradition comes from to erect trees in public spaces? Oh, you mean like in your town centre, there'll be like a big tree with lights on it and some really ugly safety barriers around it. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think actually it was. So before that, Christmas trees were just the sort of thing you would have in your own front room, like Prince Albert being the Christmas tree maestro. Like so many things. Yeah, he invented the Christmas okay. tree. And for the record, when it comes to mm. Christmas decorations, more is more. Here's a present for you. Oh, thank you. Okay, it's small, so I'm hoping this is like a beautiful bracelet or something. You've you, no, it's some Rennies. You're very welcome. That's, what what is this? Well, Rennies are needed for every Christmas. Obviously, famous for overindulging and indigestion. Okay, that's true. So the reason that I'm giving you these indigestion tablets is because somebody who may have wanted them was Samuel Pepys, who is a great diarist. And he had a bit of a debauched Christmas every year. I'm sure he did. So for those who don't know who Samuel Pepys is, he wrote a diary during the 1660s recounting his various movements in London. And he detailed his Christmas every year. So his Christmas seemed to be the same pretty much every year in that he rose fairly late in the day and then went to church to hear the sermon of a Mr Mills. The first actual account in his diary describes him going home to have dinner all alone, which is a bit sad. But one Christmas he has a right blowout on Christmas Eve and he describes going from pub to pub getting significantly more and more wasted and rolling in to his house kind of in the early hours of Christmas Day. He did seem to like a bender around Christmas. That's like half the diaries, to be honest, is went to this tavern, did comport with this comely wench, and thus unto a second tavern where a second comely wench was comported with. So I, I had kind of neutral feelings about Samuel Pepys. And then reading his diary around Christmas, he kind of comes across like a bit of a misogynist. And, and one thing in particular, which is in 1664, his diary entry begins on Christmas as... Up early to church alone, my wife's eye being ill still of the blow I did in a passion give her on Monday last. I am sort of was a Peeps fan until, I have to tell you, we've got the Fierce City pod Twitter account. So on that, we follow Samuel Peeps and it just tweets out his diary in like small chunks every week. And unfortunately, sometimes it does say something like, oh, I, I, I bash my wife a bit. But if it makes you feel better, I always respond to him, telling him to seek help. <laughs> So yeah, he's obviously a bit of a bad ombre, but the Christmas after, he describes quite a nice Christmas scene, actually. And it was 1666, which was, of course... Ooh, the year of the fire. Exactly. So he probably thought he was quite lucky to survive and also his belongings to all survive, because obviously the Great Fire was only in September, so a couple of months later came Christmas. His description of the morning doesn't sound all too unfamiliar. 
lay pretty long in bed, and then to rise, leaving my wife desirous to sleep, having sat up till four this morning seeing her maid make mince pies. I to church, where Parson Mills made a good sermon. Then home and dined well on some good ribs of beef roasted and mince pies, only my wife and brother and plenty of good wine of my own, and my heart full of true joy and thanks to Almighty for the goodness of my condition on this day. That does sound nice. A long lion, mince pies made by someone else. And he probably needed some Rennie. Very well. I shall give you a present next. And it's much better than Rennie's, so open it now. Okay, well, it's half open already, so I can tell it is <laughs> uh, food stuff. And it is a turkey crown. Yeah, it is. For your Christmas dinner. Thank you. Huh. So, in fact, this is a bait and switch of a present. Even though I think a turkey crown is a good present, I'm going to talk to you about geese instead. Because in Victorian London, turkey wasn't actually the main thing that they had for their Christmas dinner. That was much more of a, like, out-of-town thing. So pretty much all of the normal people, if you're rich, you can obviously have whatever you want. But all the normal kind of poorer people in London would have a goose. And the way that they got this goose for their Christmas Day meal was that they would be part of a goose club. So um, in the 13 weeks running up to Christmas, you paid a sort of little amount of money to the landlord of your local pub. And at that time, like there is a pub on every road, practically. So this is a very specific local thing. And the thing about Goose was it was easy to get into town because it's small, but it's also like tough. It's just like, it's not the most premium thing. Which is strange because modern ideas of like a luxury Christmas would probably include goose it's true actually it's quite like a waitrose sound like a nigella christmas Absolutely. goose fat on your potatoes and <laughs> yeah well it really wasn't that at the time so you've paid your teeny tiny amounts of money every week uh, loyally to the landlord and then on christmas eve you and all your neighbors and the other subscribers get together in the parlor of this inn and all the birds are hanging up on the wall with like numbered tickets and the landlord puts all the like matching lottery tickets in a hat and you oh. pick out a ticket. Oh, wow. What, and some would go without geese? Oh, no. No, no, everyone gets one. Don't okay. worry. Yeah, so um, in London, everyone gets one. Uh, apparently out of town, it was much more of a, like a genuine lottery where you just might end up with nothing, which is not on. And I can only imagine that in London, it just wouldn't wash. You know, like they'll, they'll probably just riot. So as it, we've learned, they always riot. It sounds like a bit of fun, but actually probably because of the economy of scale, they had to buy these in bulk. I think it's like about being organised. I, I think the landlord sorted, you know, going to the goose man and, you know, getting the goose in because they came from Norfolk. That's just where geese came from, it sounds like. And I suppose there was only probably a couple of premium geese. The rest were kind of like straggly. You presume correctly. It really sounds like you would have been the person running the goose lottery back in London and I would have been like one of the washerwomen signing up to the goose club. Embezzling all the geese. This is very accurate, Pete. So clearly you understand the economics behind a lottery like this, which I definitely wouldn't have. Yeah, so you pick out your ticket and someone would get admittedly the worst goose and someone would get like a super plump, nice goose, uh, but everyone would get a little something. So it's basically a savings club. Um, But it wasn't only geese that they did this for. You could also do your your little club to get coal. Or, my favourite, the Twelfth Cake Club. I don't know why it's called that. But um, basically, the winners in that got large cakes and the losers got just a big bun. Sounds all right to me. I think that that's quite a good result because I think sometimes you only want a big bun. I can imagine you being found in a cake club, just lots of tickets strewn around you and crumbs. (laughs) 
Like I've bought all the tickets. Yeah. All the cakes are mine. Okay, so I've got a present for you. And it's a small little one. Okay. Oh, um, it's a stuffed toy of a donkey. Um, what does this symbolise? D- Jesus? Nope, it's not religious. It, it's actually meant to kind of vaguely symbolise poverty, <laughs> of course. As did Jesus. <laughs> In that, um, you know, sometimes you would get for a present, adopt a donkey or something similar. Oh, like yeah, absolutely. Like a charity present that people still do, like adopt a goat for someone rather than getting you a good present. <laughs> So I'm I'm using the donkey to kind of talk about charity, really, and how Victorian London was all about philanthropy, especially at Christmas. I think Christmas is especially a time when people want to be visibly charitable. Mm. And that was a tradition really set by the Victorians. And there's a poem I'm going to read you, which is by a campaigner and journalist called George Robert Sims from 1877. And he's... I would like to flag up that you're now allowed to read poems on the podcast, but whenever I have wanted to read an extremely long poem, it has been banned. Well, this is my Christmas gift to you. Oh, okay. By me reading I much prefer that to the donkey. And he is capturing the sentiments of what the less fortunate feel in a workhouse when it comes to this kind of selective charity I described given by the wealthier Londoners. And the poem opens on a scene of a typical London workhouse on Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day in the workhouse, and the cold bare walls are bright, with garlands of green and holly, and the place is a pleasant sight. For with clean-washed hands and faces, in a long and hungry line, the paupers sit at the table, for this is the hour they dine. And the guardians and their ladies, although the wind is east, have come in their furs and wrappers to watch their charges feast. To smile and be condescending, put pudding on paupers' plates, to be hosts at the workhouse banquet, they've paid for with the rates. Oh, the paupers are meek and lowly, with their thank ye kindly mums. So long as they fill their stomachs, what matter whence it comes? But one of the old men mutters and pushes his plate aside. Great God, he cries, but it chokes me, for this is the day she died. And the poem goes on at great length to describe <laughs> this poor unfortunate man having uh, the previous Christmas his wife starved to death basically because no one took him in he's very very angry at these people that have decided to kind of watch the poor parade eat their meal i wonder if sims was trying to make us feel bad because i feel like he's gone so melodramatic that it's sort of gone back into comedy oh absolutely and it's a massively melodramatic poem it goes on those are just the first three stanzas of the poem and it goes on 78 (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) Uh, which i would recommend reading if you want not a laugh if you want to have a good cry at christmas a laugh cry because it's pretty out there um i don't really know how to follow this beautiful present of poverty but i will here is a little to medium-sized present for you okay it's an edible present it is it is a minced pie. Oh, you're welcome. I hate mince pies. Oh, oh well, that is an extreme shame. Sorry. Not just because I've just given you a mince pie, but also because they're an absolutely intrinsic part of Christmas. So what are you going to do if you don't like mince pies? Sorry, I'm sure it won't detract from your story of mince pies you're about to tell me. But um, until I was quite old, I thought they were actual minced meat pies. So, so Oh, so did I, absolutely. Like, I would always refuse a mince pie because I thought you were going to bite into it and it would have like spaghetti, you know, like spaghetti bolognese inside. (laughs) 
Um, but now I'll have one if they're in a little tray of mince pies at work. Mince pies actually are a pre-Victorian one. They do go quite far back and they did start with actual meat in them because everything in the past had meat in it. <laughs> Literally everything you could eat had meat in it. But uh, yeah, they're a very British tradition. So I will explain what they are just on the off chance you've never had one, which I cannot really comprehend. It's a very anglicised thing, you know. If there's any American or other oh, really? continents listening, they wouldn't have oh, mince pies. sure. It, yeah. Okay. So it's sweet pastry with kind of chopped fruit with a bit of booze and sort of just sugar sprinkled on top. And they'll have like a little holly leaf shape of pastry on it. It's, it's hard to even explain because they are so ubiquitous here. Like December the 1st comes around and instantly at work, people are like, mince pie. <laughs> But, um, oh, and apparently you eat them with uh, brandy butter on them. Apparently, so you've never had one with brandy butter on I them. I certainly haven't, because I have only ever eaten them in the context of someone at work asking me if I wanted a Marks and Spencer oh, mince no. pie. You can get super luxurious mince pies, and they're meant to be with, like, cream or custard and, you know, boozy cream. <laughs> the normal cream and the boozy <laughs> cream. That does sound like Christmas. If someone has genuinely invented boozy cream, I'd be quite up for that. So they can be traced back as far as the 13th century and uh, they got a little shout out in one of Ben Johnson who is awesome. He did these plays called Masks which are extremely elaborate. They were for the kings and queens of the time. So just like the funnest interactive theatre plays basically based around how cool that king or queen was. And um, one of his uh, had these Christmas characters. So 10 different Christmas characters including one called Minced Pie who was a fine cook and her man carried a pie dish and spoons. The mince pie became known as the Christmas pie and eventually the Tudor ingredients, which as aforementioned was pretty much 99% meat, made way for the contents being exclusively chopped up fruit and spices. Well, talking of a Christmas pie, actually, I have a recipe for a Christmas pie from all the way back in the 14th century. Okay. So this was in the reign of Richard II and the recipe goes as follows. Take pheasant, hare and chicken with two partridges, two pigeons, and two conies, oh my God. and smite them into pieces. <laughs> to get every animal you've ever seen and bash it. <laughs> Pretty much. Then pick clean away therefrom all the bones that you may, so not necessarily all of them, just whatever ones you want. And therewith do them into a crust of good paste, made craftily in the likeness of a bird's body, with the livers and hearts, two kidneys of a sheep, and oh force meat and eggs made into balls. Cast thereto powder of pepper, salt, spice, vinegar and mushrooms and then take the bones and let them seethe in a pot to make a good broth and do it into a crust of paste. This is the worst sounding thing I can imagine eating. Close it up fast and bake it well. So serve it forth with the head of one of the birds stuck at one end and the great tail on the other and divers of long feathers set cunningly all about him. So it's meant to look like a actual bird full of meat and bones. From a thousand different animals. How closely does this resemble what you have on Christmas Day? Well, I don't have any gherkin. Gherkin? Do you mean a turducken? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the version with a gherkin in the middle. (laughs) Moving on from, uh, I mean, the Rennies would definitely come in handy after that. But I think that we should move I will give you a present. Thank you. And it's a bit bigger, this one. Oh, it is. Okay, what's this? Okay. Uh, It's a box, but what's in the box? 
There's nothing in the box. Why are you pranking me? I'm not pranking you. This is meant to symbolise the great Christmas Victorian tradition of a Christmas box. Well, I say Victorian tradition. It was around before the Victorian times, but it really came into its own then. And um, it's where the, the term Boxing Day comes from. Um, gifts weren't really a thing, and it was all about feasting and religious celebration. But in fact, it was New Year's was when adults were given gifts. Um, like, for example, Samuel Pepys gave his wife a uh, walnut writing desk for New Year's. That sounds lovely. Gave his mistress oh. something nicer, though. Oh no. So it's sort of the 17th century version of the uh, scene in Love Actually where Emma Thompson finds the necklace, but she gets the Journey Mental album. Spot on. So gifts weren't though generally a thing at Christmas, although the day after Christmas was a day when the kind of upper middle classes and upper classes were expected to pay back those in their service uh, throughout the previous year. So like their cooks and their butchers, So on Boxing Day, a Christmas box was offered up to these tradesmen and they would call upon their employers and ask for a Christmas box. And it wasn't always, strictly speaking, a box. That was more of a turn of phrase to describe the gift or present that they would be given. So despite this kind of Victorian temperament of philanthropy that we've described a bit during this episode, it does seem like most of London's elite hated this kind of Boxing Day. But hang on what was in the box there was nothing in my box you're not telling me that they gave their maid servants nothing you've been of no service to me this past year (laughs) oh my god i just got really owned so punch magazine which was kind of a magazine all about london um released articles criticizing the practice and claimed it was basically an opportunity for blackmail uh with one contemporary writer about london uh charles manby smith satirized boxing day and described various visitors throughout the day with First is the sweep, who must be paid over again for sweeping your chimney, half fearing that if you refuse, you may get a smoky house for the rest of the year. So you consent for the sake of your lungs. As I said, these presents tended to be not actual kind of gifts, but more tokens of appreciation, which were more likely to be money or uh-huh. drink. Because I was going to say, look, if I get no information about what was in these boxes, I'm just going to assume it's four pheasants, two chickens, the heart of a bull or whatever it was, <laughs> all, and the box is actually a pastry chicken. No, this isn't like a seven situation. <laughs> <laughs> Head in a box. It, it was, yeah, mainly your paper boy could come round, have a quick drama something, and be on his way. Okay, that actually sounds nice. Oh, another present for PJ. Here you go. It's a small present again. Yeah, but I've said before the small presents are better, and to be honest, so far your presents have been kind of awful. Went light through. Okay. Um, it's a single sprig of holly. Uh, it symbolises Christmas cheer. Uh, holly is obviously uh, now pretty much an integral symbol of Christmas, even if we don't have actual green holly or ivy. Actually, you never see that anymore, do you? But holly and the ivy from the song and mistletoe is another key thing that I think people do still buy, only because of like the flirty, mirthful potential of it. Absolutely. But holly in particular, and just greenery, as mentioned in your workhouse poem, actually, was a key part of Christmas. Um, Maybe even more for poor people than for richer people. So there's this great book from 1861 by a journalist called Henry Mayhew, who was actually an editor of Punch that you mentioned earlier. And he liked to go out and interview like 
poorer people living in London just find out about their lives and stuff and all the different things that they did. And this book is full of the most amazing stats, which I really think are all wrong. <laughs> they just don't make any sense, but they're still fascinating. So he figured out how many, like, amounts of holly people bought across the capital during that time. It's I can't great. imagine there was many checking and balancing in terms of figuring out whether these stats are true or not. I mean, there's no big data, but I still think it's a very interesting to hear about. So uh, he said, almost every housekeeper will expend something in Christmasing. Christmasing is putting up your holly and your greenery to make your house really festive. We should so use that word nowadays. I know, I'm going to bring it back. He says it ranged from about like two pence someone could spend um, to more like 50 or 100 pounds on the grand churches. How much is that in like modern money? Well, I did actually look at, I did read a bit about this and particularly the churches were the ones who did all the great decorations, mm, like spent St. the Paul's. most money. St. Paul's, as you mentioned it, spent the in modern money the equivalent of £50,000 in decoration. That's a lot of money on some holly. So it must have been extremely festive in there. And Mayhew claims that there were about 300,000 homes in London at this time, which I'm really, I'm not sure how accurate that is. But he says there were 375,000 branches of evergreen foliage sold every year. So everyone had like at least one proper branch of foliage. Uh, Christmasing was the process of decorating and festivifying your house. But it was also like the work done by the the people who would get the holly and sell it. And this was obviously like a big old industry. Like I read um, one of the people he interviewed just really does not want to be a holly merchant, but it was just one of those lines of work that was always available to you quite casually at Christmas. These poor young guys are obviously like prickled to death by the holly and they have to go out in, you know, out of town to get it. No one wants to, no Londoner wants to leave town for yeah. any reason, not for a goose or holly, but that's what happens at Christmas. One of uh, my favourite of his correspondents is a holly seller and he's absolutely thrilled by this uh, this big market in holly. And he says, on top of all this holly just for decorating, well then consider the plum puddings. At least there's a 100,000 of them eaten in London through the Christmas and the month following. That's nearly one pudding to every 20 of the population, is it, sir? Which directly counteracts the facts we've just had about there being 300,000 homes. But then there's the great number eaten at public dinners and suppers. And there's more plum pudding clubs at the small grocers than there used to be. Plum pudding clubs, like goose clubs, but so for plum pudding. Plum pudding is not something that would be familiar to us really now, but it was very much a staple of London Christmas. And I can't tell you exactly what the plum pudding looked like, because there's also plum porridge as well, which was meant to be a big Christmas dinner thing. And plum cake. So actually the recipes I've seen, none of them include plums. That's pretty baffling to me. So I looked up plum pudding on BBC Good Food, which is the only place I know to get recipes. Um, and it looks suspiciously like just like a Christmas pudding to me. So I don't know what differentiates a plum pudding from a Christmas pudding, if which you know is another intensely boozy, fruity concoction, which actually is pretty much like a solidified ball of mince pie filling. <laughs> With some holly on it. You make it sound so appetising. I quite like it. And I do think that boozy cream would belong really nicely on that. So the last thing I have to give you is this. This is a card. This is not a present. Unless it's got money in it. Nope, it's just your Christmas card. Oh. And, and I actually resent the suggestion it's not a present because in Victorian London, Christmas cards were an, a huge deal and were the things that you opened on Christmas Day. So we didn't have the gifts. 
but rather it was a great tradition that you would get your Christmas post and everyone would open up all their Christmas cards and at that point put them on the mantelpiece. So not earlier than Christmas Day. And probably everyone sent them at like eight o'clock that morning because of the five posts a day in Victorian times. Well, accounts I've read have all been quite kind of must get the post out. So people were really keen on making sure they got their Christmas cards to arrive before Christmas, but they still wouldn't have opened them until Christmas Day. Okay, I'm glad to hear that they were having as much stress as I did before Christmas, hitting all those deadlines and things. So one um, Victorian author, Mary Vivian Hughes, described her Christmas in 1870, and she was from a quite middle-class family in Canonbury. And she describes her day starting with church at St Paul's, and then the post was the next excitement, and we displayed our cards on the mantelpiece. The traditional dinner of turkey and plum pudding and dessert was followed by a comatose afternoon. And if that isn't familiar to your ears, then you haven't done Christmas properly. wonder what was in her plum pudding... Oh, have we exchanged all of our presents? I believe so. I was really hoping for something better, to be honest, but thanks anyway. Thanks for your sprig of holly and your one light. (laughs) (laughs) Well, seeing as it's the end of the podcast and the end of the year, I'm going to read one really lovely description of Christmas in London. From back in 1731, Mr Thomas North uh, came to visit his friend for Christmas and he wrote the following. "'Tis impossible for me to give you half our bill of fare." So you must be content to know that we had turkeys, geese, capons, puddings of a dozen sorts, more than I had ever seen in my life, besides brawn, roast beef and many things of which I know not the names, minced pies in abundance and a thing they call plum pottage, which may be good for aught I know, though it seems to me to have 50 different tastes. Our wines were of the best, as were all of the rest of our liquors. In short, the god of plenty seemed to reign here and to make everything perfect. Our company was polite and every way agreeable. Nothing but mirth and loyal healths went round. If a stranger were to have made an estimate of London from this place, he would imagine it not only the most rich, but the most happy city in the world. Merry Christmas, Satu. Merry Christmas, PJ. God bless us, everyone. (laughs) This is our last episode of season one of Fierce City. But don't worry, we'll be back in March with more tales from the lesser-known history of London. During our little break, we'd love to hear from you at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet us at fiercecitypod. And a special festive shout out to all those lovely people who've contacted us during season one, including Kevin and his family in Australia, who may be listening now in their car. And also Aniko, who it turned out had a family connection with one of our pre-Raphaelite brothers. We're gathering ideas for season two, so if you have a favourite story of London, no matter how niche, please send us your ideas. Fear City has been written and produced by the voices you've heard. Thank you for listening.